Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Piki mai kake mai, ko Alison Balance ho. It's great to be back with another week of Our Changing World. Tonight we are all about threatened species. Later on we're keeping up with kakapo again, but first up, we're getting friendly with frogs. New Zealand is home to four species of small native frogs. Two in the North Island and one species on each of Maud and Stevens Island. Archie's frog on the mainland has the dubious distinction of being the world's most evolutionarily distinct and globally endangered amphibian species. The acronym for that, by the way, is EDGE. It's found on the Coromandel Peninsula and also at a site in the King Country, west of Takawiti. Every year, the Department of Conservation monitors how well the King Country frog population is doing, and I'm about to head into the bush with dock ranger and frog expert Abby Quinnell. Today we're looking for Archie's frogs and we've come out to Fireno Forest. Yep, we're on a remote gravel road and I have to say, as we were driving here, we left some quite nice sunshine behind and we're driving <laughs> it into a wall of rain. But is that a good thing from the frog's point of view? Rain is good, absolutely rain is good. Um, the cold temperature is not so good, um, but yeah, frogs like it wet. Now, we're at the road end, I've been instructed to bring two pairs of walking shoes, so why is that? Yeah, so that's for for the protection of the frogs, essentially. So we're worried about introducing diseases. So we know that um, chytrid fungus is present in the population here, and we know that the population here can handle living with the particular strain of chytrid fungus that is here. But we definitely want, don't want... There's other strains of chytrid around the world, and there are other frog diseases, and we want to do everything we can to prevent those diseases getting here, and we certainly don't want to be responsible for introducing something to the population here. So we're going to wear one pair of footwear across the paddock, and then once we go into the bush, we'll change into our clean ones. So they're clean because we've disinfected them with trigene. Yeah, so we've trigened our boots. We've rinsed it off so there's no residues because that would be bad for frogs as well. And, yeah, so we'll just have a clean pair of footwear for wearing in the frog area, and we call them clean even though they're going to end up covered in mud. <laughs> oh, great. OK, I'd better get my raincoat on. Yeah, good idea. So we've walked in for a little while now, into the bush, climbing a lot, I have to say, but the rain's holding off. Touch wood. And I've just stopped next to an A24 rat and stoat trap from Good Nature. And there's a white plastic container on the side of the tree... So that's one of the foolproof bait stations, which is what we've used in the past, more or less since this project began. And then just in the last year, we've had all these A24 traps installed throughout the whole frog area. So historically, we've been doing rat control in the northern half of the frog area since maybe about 2003, 2004. And then maybe about a year ago, we got funding from Battle for Our Birds for the A24 traps. Now, they're the self-resetting ones, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. And so this is the first place in our area that we're using them. But what that means, because we got the funding 
from battle for our birds, we could install them throughout the whole frog area, whereas traditionally we've only done the pest control in the northern half of the frog area. And the research that we've been doing since 2005 was showing us that actually we need to do pest control in the whole area because the rats were having an impact on the frog population. And so with the A24 traps, because they only have to have their lures changed every six months, whereas the bait had to be replaced every two months, it means that we can do the whole area for less effort than what we would if we were baiting. Now, how big is the frog area? Off the top of my head, maybe six square kilometres. So the Fariareno region is much bigger than that. Much bigger And they're bigger in just a little bit of it. Yeah, yeah. So we're only in the northern sort of area, and it's a bit higher. It's quite wet. And, um, yeah, they're only around here. That's amazing. So this, this frog area is now off limits to people, isn't it? Yeah, we really want people to keep out of it because of the risk of bringing in diseases and, um, and also trampling frogs as well, but especially disease. So what are rat numbers like here? You say you've been poisoning them since 2003, 2004. You've now got these self-resetting traps. Is it keeping rat numbers down? So far, so good. At 0% with our monitoring. So basically rats are at undetectable levels. That's not the same as saying they're not here at all, but there's very few of them here, which is awesome, awesome results. And our last rat monitoring, I think frogs were about 5%, so that's either frog prints or frogs in the rat tracking tunnels. So the monitoring, you're putting out these tracking tunnels and you see what walks through them? Yeah, so these are the ones with the ink pad in the middle and um, paper either side, and so something walks right through, it gets ink in the middle, and then it keeps walking and leaves its little footprints behind. I guess the frogs don't walk through, they probably jump through but um, <laughs> they leave footprints just the same. <laughs> so they're turning up in 5% of your tracking tunnels. That's pretty impressive. Oh it's been you know sometimes it depends on the weather and the time of year but we've had them as high as 12% in our tracking tunnels. <laughs> it's so cute their little footprints. That's great so this keeping rat numbers down really low is really working. There was a master's thesis in 1993 looking at their range and distribution and we had um, an intern in 2016, summer of 2016, um, who was in here repeating what had been done in that master's thesis and so she basically found um, that where we do pest control, frogs were in the same number of places or more places or there were more frogs and in the areas where we didn't do pest control then there was less frogs in less places. Yeah, and the exciting thing also was that where we have been doing pest control, they have expanded their range, and so they're slowly spreading out. Oh well, we better keep walking, we're not at the hut yet. No, no, and it's quite windy, it's a bit of a cold wind too. (laughs) You don't want to keep standing around is what you're trying to tell me. Okay, (laughs) off we go. So we've been at the hut for a few hours, we're waiting basically for it to get dark enough. So I would like to know... How long you've known that there are Archie's frogs here? I believe it was about 1991 when they discovered the frogs, and it's quite a cool story, actually. There was a public track through the middle of this frog area, and they had a group of Task Force Green volunteers, which was a sort of a work-for-the-doll, maybe get young people with no experience, get a bit of experience for them. So they weren't um, hardy conservationists? And, no, no, they weren't, absolutely not. They might be now, I don't know. But, but yeah, so they were cutting the public track and um, they're going, what's that noise? So Archie's frogs are not known for making noise. They don't croak like the introduced frogs. 
Um, but they do have a tiny little squeal or squeak, whatever whatever you want to call it. It's, it's a really little noise, and you're never expecting it. But they're going, what's that noise? And then one of the young people came along and said, what's this frog? And they're like, oh, that's a different frog. We haven't seen those in here before. <laughs> Oh, wow. And, um, and spotting. Yeah, and at the time, I mean, Archie's frogs were only known from the Coromandel Peninsula. Like, they were nowhere else in the country. And even now, like, they're literally only on the Coromandel and here in Friarino, So And there's a lot of country in between with no frogs. Oh, yeah. I guess once upon a time, there might have been frogs in a lot more places than there are now. And so then in 1993, there was a master's student came in here, and she did a range and distribution survey and sort of worked out where there was frogs and where there wasn't and how widespread they were and how many how many there were in some places. And then the reason that they put the huts here where we are now and where the other hut is is because that was where the most frogs were at so the time. So we're in Frog Central. <laughs> Absolutely. And because this area has had pest control since about 2003-2004, the other side has only had pest control for maybe two seasons. So this really is Frog Central. And that's why there is, for example, a boardwalk between the hut and the toilet. Oh, yeah, because even then there could be frogs on the boardwalk, but it does make them a bit easier to see. So we're safe during the day. These are nocturnal frogs? Absolutely. Um, you can find them in the day, but um, days that they tend to be out are kind of misty, overcast, has been raining, definitely quite wet but mostly they're nocturnal, which is why we're waiting for it to be dark. Yeah. And then what's our chore for the night? So we've got a 10 metre by 10 metre grid that we search for four nights in a row. Come rain or no rain? Oh, absolutely. No matter what happens, we're going to be out there searching that grid. So we have two other people in the hut with us. Can you introduce yourself? Uh, I'm Lee Roderick. I work out at Puriora and I'm just coming out to help for the week. Hey, I'm Gabby Keating, and I've, I'm a temporary ranger for biodiversity. And how yeah. long have you been in at this hut doing frog work for? This is my third night. Uh, this is my first week out monitoring at Farierino. What's the weather been like this week? Very wet, yeah. yeah. Torrential rain on the Monday, pretty, pretty cold, but we found a decent amount of frogs, which is cool. Um, and, yeah, just like misty rain last night as well, so hopefully it doesn't bucket down tonight. <laughs> So how long do these nights last? And when you say a decent amount of frogs, what's a decent amount of Archie's frogs to find? So we found around the early 20s uh, this week. But like last week we found about 50 on one of the nights. So that was, that was awesome. So what time did you get to bed this morning? Uh, this morning we finished at about 10 past two. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> so we have very... Very slowly made our way up from the hut to the grid, which isn't very far, but it's, I feel like we've been walking in slow motion. But there's been a really good reason for that. Yeah, so there was quite a few frogs out at the side of the track that we were walking up. And in fact, there was a couple of frogs out in the middle of the track that we were walking up. Um, so we have very carefully looked at every spot before we've put our foot down. And actually... We've also looked at any tree that we put our hand against for balance to make sure there's no frogs there before we've put our hand there. Now, the first frog we saw was actually a tiny little one. It was about the size of my thumbnail. That was so cute. Yeah, if that, it may have been smaller than that. (laughs) And then some of them were a little larger, but they're still very small frogs, aren't they? Yeah, they're definitely smaller than the introduced Australian frogs. And mostly brownish, but brown with sort of almost goldy markings and a really green one? 
So you, yes, there's quite a variety in some colour? Some beautiful ones. I love the, the ones that have a lot of bright green. And then some of them have that beautiful bright orangey red along their sides as well when they open their legs out. Okay, so we're at the grid and we're just looking everywhere. Is that the plan? Yeah, yeah. So, like, if you're looking at this grass that's in front of us, is a clump of grass. This is rice grass. If you can't see, there's bits where you can't see, then you have to very gently sort of move things so that you can actually see the whole thing. But um, we are searching for emergent frogs, so we're not, uh, we're not digging in the leaf litter, we're not lifting logs or rocks or anything, but we are looking quite hard. We're also searching up to two metres high, up the trunks of trees. And if we find one, we have a careful protocol for how to pick it up, put it in a plastic bag, using a special glove, mark where it was found and hang it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the one. Hang it up safely out of, out of reach, measure where it was found, record all our notes and then keep searching until we've finished searching the whole grid. Yeah, so the idea is to have a light touch. The frogs are already out and about and we're just borrowing them temporarily <laughs> and we'll bring them back. That's a great way to put it. <laughs> so picture this. It's very dark, it's raining lightly and we each have a lane. Think parallel swimming pool lanes to search. We're on our hands and knees in very wet forest, basically crawling along. We move so slowly and carefully, it's like a weird Tai Chi exercise, searching every square centimetre to catch every frog that's out and about. We do this for about two hours. Then it's time to weigh, measure and take mug shots of every frog. We're back at the hut. I stopped recording because it got a bit wet up there. But some of you were much more successful than me. <laughs> I found three. How many did you find, Lee? I found 16. I found 10. And do we know good. how many Abby got? Seven or eight or something like that. Nearly 40. So that's not a bad haul for a couple of hours. And now there's a lot of processing. <laughs> Absolutely. So what are you going to do with them now? Um, we're going to be setting them on some place cards and then we set that place card in the middle of, of a mirror stage and we're taking photos of the top side view of them, front and sides. So you've got number four there. That's a big frog. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's quite a big frog. So I'd say this one's a female because the females get bigger than the males. So up to a certain size, it could be either female or male. We've got no way to tell, but once I get this big... That's got to be a girl. So are you seeing these frogs from year to year? Some of them we only find once and some of them we find multiple times from year after year. There's definitely frogs that we've found most years. And what is all of this telling you? Do you have results yet on, you know, is the population stable? Is it going up or down? So if from the mark recapture data that we're collecting, looking at individuals in the population, you can look at survival from year to year. You can look at recruitment of juveniles into the breeding population. Um, but basically from what we've done, we can tell that definitely rat control has made a difference for the frog population. And so where we have rat control, the frog, frog population is doing really well. We're getting lots of frogs and it's also expanding its range. As you can see, sometimes they get a bit squirmy. <laughs> beautiful copper-coloured armpits, that one. See their beautiful long toes? They're it's... great climbers, aren't they? Oh, they're amazing. When we went up this evening, there were lots on the track, and when we came back down, we saw just one on a tree. Do they go up during the night? They're coming out from wherever they've spent the day, 
and making their way across the ground to wherever they want to sit for the night. And then they can quite happily just sit in one spot for the night and not You've move done some work with trail cameras that have showed that? Yeah, yeah. So um, we had trail cameras taking photos every 10 minutes throughout the night. So there was a lot of photos to look through. The frog would come out and then it would sit there for two hours and then it would turn around and then it would sit there for another three hours and then it would go away. So I think they do a lot of sitting. <laughs> yeah, so they've been described as sit and wait predators. Um, so they excel at sitting and then waiting and then eventually something comes past that they want to eat and they jump on it and stuff it into their mouth. <laughs> they jump quite well. Yeah. But um, they've never clumsy. perfected the art of landing and so they have a tendency to face plant. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes it's more nose plant or like upside down. And if it doesn't all fit in their mouth, apparently they can use their front feet to try and stuff it in a bit more <laughs> yeah yeah i'd love to see that it would be great oh, 0.19 of a gram <laughs> 0.19 of a gram that's ridiculously small <laughs> yeah oh but if you look goodness. at it it is ridiculously small <laughs> he's he's like the size of my pinky finger now just about what's our heaviest one so far gabby 4.66 and actually, let's talk about Archie's frog breeding because that's quite different. Archie's frogs, the female will lay the eggs and then the male will guard them. So they'll have a little nest somewhere under a rock or under a log or tucked in, tucked in a hollow punga or somewhere there'll be a little hole. And the male Archie's frog will guard those eggs until they hatch. And so they don't have a free-swimming tadpole stage. They hatch as little froglets, and so they still have a tail, but they have those rudimentary little limbs, and they'll wriggle their way up onto their dad's back, and they'll sit on their dad's back while they develop into tiny little frogs with no tail. And they're just so tiny, and they'll sit on their dad's back until they're big enough to leave, and then they'll leave, and then dad will finally come out from his nest and get on with his life again till next year. So before we can go to bed, there is one last job to do. Well, we've got to put the frogs back where they came from. <laughs> because we left little markers so we can return them to the exact spot. Yeah, so I mean, goodness knows what the frogs think about it all. It must be like being abducted by aliens. But it's all for good conservation science. Yeah, and so from doing this for the number of years that we've been doing it, we know that we need to be doing rat control to protect these frogs so that the population can thrive up here. Well, it's certainly great to see so many of these beautiful little Archie's frogs out and about in this wet forest. Well, they love it when it's wet. And, I mean, it's not so great for us, but it's fantastic walking around up here. And, like, we're so slow when we're walking, you know. You're, like, looking every every place you put your foot to make sure there's no frog. But it's cool that they're all over the place up here. They look beautiful in the torchlight because I think because they're shiny, they shine in the torchlight. They look like little jewels or green and orange and brown. They're just gorgeous. Thanks, Abby. That was Doc Ranger Abby Quinnell, who really likes her job. And we also heard from frog wranglers Gabby Keating and Lee Roderick. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tato al horihori. Hei hōtaka e pāna ki tō tato al whānui. I'm Alison Balance, and you're with Our Changing World. Now, it's time to catch up with our regular fix from the Kākāpō Files podcast. 
We're following the biggest breeding season on record for this threatened giant flightless parrot, which has a total world population of just 147 birds. There are three times as many birds now as there were in the early 1990s, and the Kākāpō recovery team from the Department of Conservation is hoping for a big increase this year. As I may have mentioned more than once before, there is so much happening with Kākāpō this summer that pretty much anything I report is both exciting and out of date almost immediately. So, with that in mind, here's an interview I did two days ago with the Kākāpō recovery program manager Deirdre Verko. Kia ora Deirdre and welcome back to the Kākāpō Files. Kia ora Alison. Now I've rung up to get some updates on numbers, but as you and I both know, those numbers change by the moment. (laughs) They sure are changing rapidly. So uh, how many chicks have hatched so far? We've had five chicks hatched so far, and as I speak, I think we've got another one on its way, probably due within the next few hours, and maybe another one this afternoon. And the chicks so far are all good and strong and healthy? Yeah, they're really good. They've been hatching really well. Incubation's obviously gone well, and um, no, they're looking really great. So how many eggs in total have you got now, and of those, how many are known to be fertile? And I'm sure you've probably still got some that you don't know. It's a big number now. It's the biggest number we've ever had. We've got 148 eggs that we know of. <laughs> like earlier in the season, Daryl Eason was predicting we might have up to 150. So we're getting close to that number. And we've checked the majority of them now. I think we've still got 11 that we're unsure of whether they're developing or not. Um, But in total, we've had 62 fertile eggs, so 62 that have started to develop. But we have had some egg deaths, which is quite, quite usual. So we've had 13 egg deaths, and with the five hatches... Um, That takes us to a total of 44 eggs at the moment that are still developing and still viable. Do you have any female kākāpō on Whenoho, Codfish Island, who have not yet nested? Well, we've got one female that hasn't yet mated, uh, and we have four females that have mated, but we have not quite located their nest yet. So, yeah, a few more to come. Oh, well, fingers crossed for all of those. And I know that you are pulling all of these eggs in for captive rearing so that you can encourage the females to go out and mate again. Has that strategy started to work yet? Yeah, we've been holding our breath, to be honest, Alison. It's been a bit of a gamble, uh, but we are starting to see the females on anchor mate again. So we've had five females go for a second round so far, and one of those females uh, just mated for a second time of her second round last night. So that's all starting to really pay off in... um, I'm starting to relax a little on that front, which is great to see. We haven't yet had any females on Whenuaho go for a second round, but they've been a little bit behind anchor, so we're still expecting that that to happen. Now, on the Kākāpō files so far, we've focused on Whenuaho and on Anchor Island, but there is actually a third island, Hotoru Little Barrier, up in the Hareki Gulf. What's happening there? Yeah, well, it's a bit quiet on the Hotoru front, uh, but they have kicked in now. So we've had at least one mating that we know of, and that was a female by the name of Lisa, who recently was transferred up to Hotoru from Whenuaho. And interestingly, when she lived on Whenuaho, she was always the first female to, to start the, the mating. So it looks like she's taking that role on up there as well. We have seven females up there that could mate this year, so it's great that one of them has. I think she mated with Jester. 
and we're just waiting to get a little bit more information from Hotoru. We'll fly a Sky Ranger uh, a plane over the island in the next few days to collect some more data from their transmitters, and that'll tell us whether there has been more matings. Fantastic. And your little Portacom nursery on Fenoho is starting to fill up with those chicks. You've come to a decision about what to do with those. What's happening with them? Yeah, so on Wednesday, actually that's tomorrow, tomorrow we are sending the first batch of chicks off Fenoho. I think there'll be the five plus maybe one that hatches today. And those chicks will go to the Dunedin Wildlife Hospital where they'll be under the care of um, head vet Lisa Aguila. Lisa's done a few seasons with us um, and is really, really experienced, probably one of the most experienced people we have at Kākāpō hand rearing. And so she'll be taking some of our chicks uh, when they're younger and raising them until about 30 days old just to help us spread the workload because we are going to have quite a large number to hand rear this season. So, yeah, Lisa will be driving to Invercargill uh, tomorrow morning to collect her first batch. Oh, well, that'll be nice to and at least remove part of the workload from you out on Whenuaho, because I imagine you'll run pretty ragged out there. Well, that's right. We're still very busy, especially as the second round of matings and nest finding comes on. That'll keep the team absolutely flat out. So moving those chicks out of the small Portacom lab that we have into a, um, into a much better facility uh, where they can have full focus of, of Lisa and her team will be a great move. And we'll move chicks through to her probably on a weekly basis. Uh, over the next three to four weeks as this first round of of eggs hatch um, and the chicks are ready to move on. Any other news that we need to know about Deirdre? Looking to the future, we'll have, by about the 20th of February, we will be hand-rearing Kākāpō in in Vakargal as well. So we're just putting the finishing touches on a hand-rearing facility there that will be suitable for uh, taking the bulk of the chicks uh, and particularly those that are over, over 30 days old until they're ready to go back to the islands, which will probably be around middle of April, early May. Um, so it's all happening quite fast this year. Um, the team are really, really positive um, and very excited about the second round and, and that this strategy seems to be paying off. Thanks, Deirdre. That was Deirdre Verko from the Department of Conservation. And that's our show for tonight. You can find Episode 8, Round 2 Begins, as well as all the other episodes of the Kākāpō Files on our webpage, where you can also find the Archie's Frog story, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. Our Changing World and the Kākāpō Files are podcasts. If podcasts are your thing, look out for them at Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all the other usual places. Stay in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook, where we are RNZ Science. Thanks for listening. But for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Poor Marie. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.